From the Financial Times in London, I'm James Wilson and this is FT News. We're talking today about trade. The EU and Japan have struck a deal on a wide-ranging free trade agreement after four years of talks. The deal breaks down most tariff barriers and also has symbolic intent after some signs that the US, under President Donald Trump, was driving the world in a more protectionist direction. Joining me to discuss the issue are Robin Harding, our Tokyo correspondent who's on the line from Japan, and with me in the studio is Daniel Dombey, our Deputy World News Editor. I'll start with you, Robin, if I can. This is quite a moment, really. How did we get here, and what's being said about the deal today? So talks for an EU-Japan trade deal began in 2013, so it's been four years of repeated rounds of negotiations, and there were several times when it looked like a deal was close, but it broke down over some difficult issue on either side. So it's been a long road, and it's quite a big deal to actually finally get here. In Tokyo, the mood is pretty positive. People are very glad either deal. And that's in particular because the TPP, Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was a huge trade deal involving the US and was a very big deal for Japan, fell apart after Donald Trump became president and made one of his very first acts as president withdrawing the US from that TPP trade deal. So this EU deal is a compensation and it has very important repercussions for domestic politics and domestic reform in Japan. We'll come back, Robin, if you don't mind, to some of those domestic issues. Can you just perhaps explain to our listeners what it is particularly about today's agreement that is most exciting to Japanese companies, the corporate sector? What are they specifically going to be able to get out of this deal in terms of their ability to sell into Europe? So the deal cuts tariffs on almost all products traded between the EU and Japan. So after the transition period for this deal is complete, Japan will be able to sell automobiles and automobile parts to all European Union markets with zero duty. And that will mean a big boost in competitiveness, both for cars exported from Japan, Japanese cars assembled in Europe, which use parts from Japan. And in particular, it will give a competitive boost relative to Korea, which already has a free trade deal with the EU and has therefore for some years now been advantaged over Japan in the EU market. So changing that, getting Japan that zero tariff access is expected to generate a lot of jobs, a lot of increased exports for Japanese car companies. That sounds beneficial for the Japanese economy then, Robin. Dan, perhaps I should ask you the obvious next question, which is what does the EU get out of this in return for that access for Japanese companies? I think we should look at this in two ways. First of all, there are the nuts and bolts of the uh, trade gains, which the EU says are considerable, although let's remember, as Robin said, this is a text that has not yet been finalised, much less agreed, much less ratified, much less implemented. And then there's the symbolic side of this, which I think the Europeans have reasons to look for a spring in their step as well. On the nuts and bots side, the claims the EU is making of this deal are very considerable. They say this is the biggest bilateral deal they've ever done. It's with the world's fourth biggest economy. They're looking at increasing exports annually by anything up to 20 billion euros of saving something like a billion euros in in duties. We're talking about if you are holding a cheese and wine party in Japan, you're going to benefit from this because tariffs of 30% on cheese and 15% on wine may more or less eventually be a matter of history, although there are transition periods for soft cheese, you'll be glad to know. They're looking at kind of a procurement market being opened up as well, so that European companies can compete for procurement projects in some of the biggest Japanese cities. That is not nothing. And indeed, the 28 billion services, 28 billion in euros in services that the Europeans currently export to Japan, they're hoping that that will go up 
very considerably. And of course, services is one of the key areas of international trade growth. So they are looking for very, very considerable upside from this very, very significant trade deal. But added to which this feeds into a narrative, doesn't it? You know, first of all, the Europeans, I think, are fairly clearer than ever before that the US is not setting the world agenda unopposed, that even though Mr. Trump is pushing a more protectionist line, the Europeans are clear that this is something that they don't necessarily want to fall in line with. In fact, they want to push on in a very different kind of line. In addition, Europe had its wobbly moment. Obviously, people were worried about populism in Europe. The Brexit vote was clearly a blow to the European project. Now, instead, we've seen Mr. Macron be elected very handily and get a big legislative majority in France. We've seen Angela Merkel really pull ahead in the polls in Germany. We've seen the European economy economy do better than just about any other major economy in the world. And I think this is a sense that Europe's kind of got its mojo back after a very difficult moment. I would say, however, that trade deals are not universally popular and that in the past, the electorate has something to say about them as well. Yeah, we'll come on to the issue of ratification. I should also ask you a little bit as well. You've said the EU's got its mojo back. One of the countries, of course, just about to leave the EU is Britain. And that is a country in the EU that has a great exposure to the Japanese car industry in particular. Where's this going to leave Britain if and when this agreement is implemented. How does its economy fit into this picture? The irony is exquisitely painful, to be honest, because the EU timetable that they set out, which may be optimistic, may be realistic, I don't know at this stage, is that this agreement will take force in the early part of 2019, which of course is exactly the moment that we in Britain are headed out of the door. Clearly, there were already concerns that the British car industry would be in future much more British-oriented rather than a platform to Europe. So whereas there was some upside from Brexit that people were talking about in terms of increasing the proportion of locally sourced components. The downside is that it may become very much more difficult to service the rest of the continent from the British market. Nissan, is what, which has a very big plant in Sunderland, is obviously one of the companies that's had concerns about that. Theresa May's government has offered it assurances which are not public to allow it to continue with its current investments. But this is now an additional set of concerns. There is a very live debate in the UK right now about whether we remain in the EU customs union or linked to the EU customs union for a long transition period or even semi-permanently. This deal may well give ammunition to those who think that we should stay in the customs union. We should really think about the costs of leaving the customs Union now that it's effectively much bigger and gives us reach all the way to, to Japan. And secondly, we're already seeing something that looks a bit like a bit of a crisis in the UK car industry, where for the first half of this year, investments just fallen to 322 million, which compares to much, much more, the 2.5 billion in the whole of 2015. So we're seeing the level more or less fall into a quarter of its former self. So people are very, very concerned about uh, the car industry. And they're also there's a very live debate about the customs union in the UK, which this is undoubtedly going to influence. So plenty for the UK to think about. Thanks, Dan. So Robin, let me come back to you now. You talked earlier about the domestic politics of this and how this deal will play in Japan. What are the considerations in that respect? Well, the interesting thing about trade deals for Japan is that normally it's about what you gain on the export side, the auto exports that we talked about earlier. But that's not the only factor at work here because Japan's also very interested in the potential for these agricultural imports to raise the productivity of its own agricultural sector, which is very low. The idea is that you get cheap, high-quality foreign agricultural goods coming into the Japanese market, and that forces the very large but very unproductive Japanese agricultural sector to up its game. And really, the honest hope is that quite a lot of people will leave the unproductive agricultural sector and move into the more productive industrial sector which given 
Japan's declining population and the falling workforce is is very important to sustaining continued productivity growth in the country. So it was a domestic economic agenda at work as well as the export agenda. In the pure politics of it, then it's seen as a win for Prime Minister Abe, and he's been having a tough time lately. So being able to go on the international stage and tout a successful trade deal, even if it's not particularly popular with Japan's farmers, is still probably a net political positive for him. Plenty of optimism around this deal then on both sides then in the EU and in Tokyo and interesting chance for structural transformation in the Japanese economy, Robin. But all that said, there's still a long way to go potentially in implementing this deal. We've seen before, haven't we, that once the uh, the negotiators stop talking, the real hard bargaining can start over the politics of ratification of they, these deals. Can you tell us what happens next, Robin, in, in that regard? Well, in Japan, ratification, I think, will be no problem. It has to go through Parliament, but the ruling LDP has got a big majority in both houses. I think they will push it through here without much difficulty. Europe is another matter, but I'll defer to Dan to tell you about the grim politics of getting trade deals ratified in Europe. Dan, we've seen recent evidence, haven't we, that that is a problematic issue in the EU, to say the least. We've obviously seen this with the uh, free trade deal with Canada, and you could hardly think of a more inoffensive interlocutor than the Canadians, which really was held to ransom by the Wallonian Parliament, one of a number of regional and linguistic assemblies in just that relatively small country, Belgium, which really put the future of that agreement in doubt and uh, seemed to reduce um, the then Canadian Trade Minister to tears. It's a very difficult issue to handle these things in Europe. There's particular concerns about certain issues, which the I think they're trying to kind of ring fence here. So you'll notice that there are in this agreement assurances that we're not going to be importing dead Japanese whales or dodgy timber. There are also assurances that somehow we're going to sort out, although it's not very clear, this whole issue of investor protection, which people in Germany and elsewhere in Europe are worried sometimes trumps national courts and national sovereignty and is a really, really hot button issue in Europe. One big issue, I have to say, I don't know the answer answer to this, listeners may be much better informed than me, is whether this is dubbed a mixed agreement or a classic trade agreement and that will determine whether this is something that is agreed by unanimity among not just national but regional parliaments in the EU or whether it has a much smoother path that's going to be tremendously important and fundamentally, to be absolutely honest, I think what's going to really determine the fate of this is is Europe now so self-confident that it's more comfortable with globalisation than it's been with in the last uh, two or three years. So still lots to play for. Thank you very much, Dan Dombey, our Deputy World News Editor here in London, and Dan, a bad line for which I apologise slightly, Robin Harding, our correspondent in Tokyo. Thanks very much for taking part, and uh, thanks to you for listening. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's Corient.com. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. 
We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com.